it was extremely hard. I remember days where I'd get in my car after being at work for 12, 14 hours and be exhausted. I mean, just as exhausted as you possibly could be. And after six months of not taking a day off, you're kind of like, am I really, like, I knew this was going to be hard, but did I, did I think it was going to be this hard? Uh, is this worth it? Hey everyone, this is your co-host Posh, and we're here on the Founder Hour podcast. I got Pat Pat sitting next to me, and we're here at Tyler Wilson's house. Thank you, Tyler, for having us. He is the co-founder of, I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try my best, Vastkuke. Pretty good, pretty good. Tell us Pat, how it is. Let's hear it. Vastkuke. Yeah, we're getting there, so Vastkuke. Okay. There's like this like... You're doing like a lisp. It, there's like a in the middle Kuka. of West. There's Kuka. like this. There's like this sound. Like I don't know how you do it. Yeah, I, I will get a call for sure from a German <laughs> that I'm not saying it correctly. Why did you come up with such a difficult name? So my uh, my co-founder Joseph um, was in the process of looking for names. I was sitting in a marketing class at USC, and he texted me during class and these random like configurations of letters, and I was like, what, what? And he's like, just call me after class. And he says this, this worst kushi. And I was like, what? And then, and then we had a German friend say it to us. Uh-huh. And it just sounds perfect for a sausage kitchen. And the translation is sausage kitchen. Okay. And for those that don't know yet, we're talking about what you may know as worst kush, which is uh, a sausage and German beer spot. Uh, here in LA, there's a spot in the Arts District, there's a spot in Venice, and I read that there was a spot in Denver as well. Um, so that's how you guys might recognize the name. And once you see the logo on our, you know, on our podcast website and the graphics and whatnot, you'll realize what it is. Um, so, Tyler, you said that your cousin, was it your cousin or your friend? My cousin. So your cousin texts you this name, and mm-hmm. um, what happens after that? So we had some other really pretty cheesy names that we were working through, and, and we settled on this name, and everybody at first was, you guys are crazy, much less nobody can read it, but they can't say it either. Yeah. And we were pretty convinced that it was the perfect name for what we were trying to do. Um, and we set out to do a restaurant based on sausages better than anybody else has ever done a restaurant surrounded exclusively on sausages. And to fill out and round out what we were doing, um, we, we wanted more than just German beers and sausages. We felt that Germans, technically, they would say they have a lot of variety in brands, but mm-hmm. not very many variety in styles. Mm-hmm. So that's where we added Belgian-style fries and Belgian beers. And that's where our concept has been for 10 years. Amazing. So yeah, before we get into like kind of how the idea came about, kind of taking it back to I guess your personal like life journey. Did you grow up in LA? So I grew up north of Los Angeles in Santa Barbara, okay. uh, more specifically Carpinteria. Mm-hmm. And I got I got the Santa Barbara vibes. Yeah, yeah. pretty pretty mellow. Yeah. Um, and came to USC for swimming and water polo in two thousand. Okay. Uh, 
So prime Wait, time Michael Phelps Olympic. Uh, no, no, no. Years. But I'm my years are all off. It's gone so fast. Two thousand four, maybe. Two thousand four to two thousand eight is when I was yeah. at USC. Also prime time Michael Phelps years. Prime so, yeah. time yeah. Michael Phelps had a long reign, <laughs> um, and that's what I I came to USC for, and how I ended up in LA, and and ultimately discovered downtown LA. Were you a surfer up in Santa Barbara? Swimmer, water polo player, and surfed whenever I could. And, and so your dream was just to what, become a professional swimmer or? No, I was not good enough to be a professional athlete at any stretch of the imagination. And even if you are a professional athlete in swimming or water polo, you're still not paying your bills yeah, off yeah. of any sort of yeah, uh, And was contract. USC's water polo team like one of the best teams back then too? Yes, USC's water polo team has been and has continued to be one of the best teams in the country. Yeah. Um, pretty much always. They just win every year. They literally win every <laughs> year. I think actually last year they might not have, but generally they win. I mean, they're yeah. like top two. Like, oh, yeah, I they think, got second. Yeah, all the time. It's, they're fine. Um, but at USC, um, I had trouble getting into USC. I would have only, I only got in through my ability to swim and play water polo and to take on two sports that are opposite seasons, uh, at that level is, it was, could have been a mistake, but it's something I wanted to do because I liked the balance. I like doing two sports. I didn't want to do one thing. You kind of move on. And ultimately I almost failed out my freshman year. So school was really hard for me. Um, I'm dyslexic. And was just struggling to get through school, but I also missed half of both semesters. If I made it to class uh, when we weren't traveling, when I went to class when we weren't traveling, it's still, you have 20, 25 hours a week in the pool. So um, it became a challenge. Anyhow, um, got that sorted out. I dropped down to just swimming after my first year and quickly realized how much extra time there is when you're not an athlete full time twice. And uh, started exploring other things. But what's cool or interesting, and this is a little bit of a plug for, for USC, is I only went to USC because of their business school. Hmm. Um, I was not ever interested in just taking the ideas or economics classes. Right. UCLA was the other school I was really considering. And, uh, but they don't really have a business program. They don't have a business program right. for undergrad. And this is what we Economics were talking based, about. Right. I think if you're, if you're not going into finance, like it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I needed something more on the hey, real life mm-hmm. side, mm-hmm. problem solving, thinking through challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but like growing up, was like anyone in your family like an entrepreneur? Or because uh, I know you you, did, you studied the entrepreneurship program at Marshall USC's Marshall Bus- uh, School of Business, so. Growing up, did you have like people in your family that ran their own business, or was it just why? Did, why were you interested in it? I never really pictured myself not. Or, I never pictured myself getting a job. Uh-huh. I always looked at the world as where do you go create opportunities for yourself, and that started from picking oranges at my grandfather's ranch when I was five through fourteen. I had a business in high school that rented margarita machines to private parties. <laughs> I did it starting in 15, and then I sold it for what it cost me to get into the business. So like four years $300. later, three hundred dollars. Actually, I think my startup cost was around four grand. Oh, yeah, had a couple machines and um, rented them to a lot of birthday parties and school events. And I thought I had a great business. Were you like a margarita guy? I was. Uh, the name of my business then was Turtles Frozen Drinks. My nickname in high school was Turtle. Why is that? Um, there was a surf movie. Um, from 
uh, probably the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, called North Shore. Okay. And at the time, I was kind of going back and forth from Ho- Hawaii, and I lived there at one point. And I, I said something that sounded just like this character, Turtle, to one of the seniors on the water polo team my freshman year. And uh, I don't think anybody at the school knew my real name. <laughs> I was like Still that. fairly convinced that they don't know my name. It was kind of good, too, I'm sure, where like people thought you were going to be like a slow swimmer, and then you would just show up and just blow them out of the water. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it, was a, it was a coy. Yeah. Wait, so why did you... You said you lived in Hawaii? I, when I was very young, oh, okay. uh, second and third grade. Um, and, but we had spent a lot of time going back Mm -hmm. and forth. So So now that you're realizing that, you know, you have all this free time and, you know, you want to go out and do your own thing essentially, eventually, what, what are you doing as a student? So as I mentioned, I'm back at USC. I'm in a program called, um, Masters in Science of Entrepreneurship and Innovation. This is back then? No, this no, is this now. Is right? now. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I yeah, jumped I meant, on you. No worries. I meant back then, like when you were still doing the swimming thing and yep. being, you know, quote unquote, a student. Yeah. So it's an interesting story. So you have to have a 3.0 to get into the business school at USC. Okay. And the entrepreneurship school is a subcategory within the business school. I couldn't get into the business school, I only had a 2.5. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was great. I was like, I'm, I'm winning here. <laughs> Kidding me? A 2.0 would be terrible. A 2.5, we're like doing really well. <laughs> but the standards at the business school were a little higher. And uh, I had to work hard to get that 2.5, and I couldn't move the grade. I got rejected three times. And on the third time, they said, although you're allowed to apply as many times as you want, we recommend you do not apply again. You need to see a counselor. So that was in my junior year. And I had only taken electives for an entire year in the business school. And I did something interesting. I, I, the director at the time, Tom O'Malia, got me a, um, an exemption to be a, a minor in the entrepreneurship program. The cool thing is that gave me clearance to sign up for whatever class I wanted in the business school, kind of as like a who would ever do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was an athlete, I could register before anybody else. So I could literally right. pick. Oh, yeah, my I remember own, that. My all own. the athletes would get all the good classes. Yep. So I, I registered two weeks before anybody else and had clearance to take any class I wanted. So it worked out perfectly. So I just took classes I liked. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did for my junior and senior year. And did you like those classes? They were great. They were amazing. Um, and knowing that I was pretty much on a course to never get a degree... I wasn't necessarily studying to get a grade, but studying to learn what I wanted to learn and what I enjoyed to learn. Mm-hmm. So getting a C was hard for me, but as long as I passed and felt like I learned the material, I was pretty stoked. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> what did you kind of like seek out to learn? Like, was it, I mean, I know the business school, Marshall's, I went to Marshall too, so it's like a very broad program. And then the entrepreneurship school is also pretty broad, but it's about like finding ideas, doing the feasibility analysis, all that stuff. Um, was there anything in particular that like you were looking out for? Or is it more like, I just, I'm just going to soak in as much as I can and, and hopefully never uh, work for anybody? Yeah, I wasn't going to work for anybody. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to happen. <laughs> that, was like, that was like the one thing that you just knew for a fact. I was pretty certain. I mean, I mean but there was no backup or was there? Uh, I, I did not have a backup, and I still don't. Mm-hmm. Um, if, uh, if this doesn't work, I'll be on to something else. else yeah. um, kind of made that clear to my wife early on. Like, 
It's either going to be and great. I'm curious or, about that story, but I want to yeah, finish yeah. this whole you know USC life first. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I essentially wanted to open a restaurant, or at the time, I mean, I kind of got lost. The, the question was like classes. what you were kind of seeking got out it. through the, the I program. was looking for, well, I, the few things I learned, right? So um, I spent a lot of time listening in marketing class. I really, really loved entry-level marketing. Like it resonated so well for me because it was broad. I loved the accounting, the, the, just the base, right? I couldn't build a PL. I couldn't connect the balance sheets and all this. Like that was a little ups and downs and, no, I don't know. I, yeah. I, but I can read them. Yep. And uh, that's as long as you know those correlations of those numbers on those and what numbers mean what, but building them is a whole nother level. And then in the entrepreneurship classes, they stress the relationship between you and others heavily. Mm-hmm. And I hate the word kind of with a passion. Networking? Yes. <laughs> it's the worst. It's the worst word ever. Ever because yep. it's so not genuine. It's mm-hmm. transactional. It's super transactional. Yeah. And that word always never settled well with me. Mm-hmm. But when I started understanding what their definition of the word was, it's a friendship. Yeah. And that word resonated with me yeah. a lot better than networking. And the idea of having friends and knowing what your friends do and looking out for your friends and helping them do what they want to do without looking for what you want to do, well, things will happen. Mm-hmm. And that idea, as simple as it is, right? These aren't, this isn't mind-blowing yeah, stuff that you need yeah. to pay $180,000 for. <laughs> no, yeah, but that's, that's really what, it, like, what it's all about, is the right. connections you make. <clears throat> Right. So the professors used to, you know, joke about, yeah, I could get in hold of the president in two phone calls. And you're kind of like, well, that's arrogant of you. Who cares? Right. What do you need to talk to him about? And this is the president of the country. Right. Like, how quickly could I get in touch with this person? Mm -hmm. And that that idea at first was very annoying to me. But ultimately, I started understanding like degrees of separation. The degrees of separation, who you know and how you're able to connect them yeah. and how you're looking out to build and grow them. Ultimately, don't go looking for something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we already know, we all know that if the people that are out there looking for something, you feel like you're being, you, you got to go take a shower. Yeah. <laughs> it's sticky out. You're like, God, you're annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. You mentioned that you wanted to start a restaurant. Was like, what, how did that come about? Well, starting a restaurant was an interesting statement because we didn't think we were starting a restaurant. Joseph was a designer, is a designer, a very, very talented This is designer. your cousin. This is my cousin. And he also went to USC? And no, he went to USF in okay. San Francisco and had a co-degree that was with uh, California School of Arts and Crafts, I believe. In um, Pasadena? Uh, no, in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, they had some sort of joint business design degree. Got it. He, he has several degrees. Um, and w- he was designing bars during high school or during college and, and ultimately post-college and had a design firm. Um, and was like, we could do this. We could do a bar in L.A. And I was like, yeah, L.A. is going to explode. Like, this city is poised. That all they talk about is how great downtown is. And there's literally a California pizza kitchen. Like, that's it. Yeah. And uh, there's going to be an opportunity. 
So we started biking down there. He ended up moving on my floor on 30th Street, and yeah. we were sharing a room and uh, ultimately found a property, raised capital from um, the only way that any two guys that are, I was 21 and he was 25, are going to get capital, which is friends, family, and fools. And mm-hmm. um, we had uh, had built some goodwill within our family and had a family culture of, of investing in, in second generations. And um, for multiple generations, that's how uh, different entrepreneurs within the family had gotten started. So it wasn't crazy for us to ask. How much would, did you guys raise from these friends, family, um, and fools? Well, we, the, the friends and fools are harder than the family. <laughs> yeah. um, so You'd we, be surprised because you would think the fools would be easier. Yeah, you would think. <laughs> um, no, wise fools. Wise fools. Um, at the time, we didn't have any friends that had any money either. So That was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, our, uh, our grandparents and parents were our backers, and um, we were able to on a relatively, it's a lot of money, but uh, relatively leanly open a 3,500-square-foot restaurant for $700,000. Wow. And that was a complete build. Um, it was not previously a restaurant. Right. So, Tyler, I, I'm, I'm curious. We, you know, we hear a lot about people talking about, you know, we raise money from friends and family, but we've never really, I, I mean, Pat, when I say we, Pat and I, we haven't heard any of our guests that have said that talk about that actual conversation. Like, how, what, what what is the pitch like, you know? Yeah. I just want to see you, like, or I want to hear what it was like being in that moment asking mm-hmm. friends and family for money for this com- concept that you, you know, can, or this name of this company that you could barely say for a concept that, you know, you don't really know about much. Totally. So I don't remember the exact order sure. of events. I think the name came later. Okay. So at the time... It was a sausage restaurant and a bar. It was going to be two concepts. And if you notice, the restaurant is separate from right. the grill. Yeah. Well, that was going to stay separate. One business in two operating kind of identities. Right. The sausage business took off so heavily that the bar identity never was established. So that was kind of a customer said, we want the sausages. And you listen. And we had no choice. Well, we've been fools to try and listen. Or not to listen. Um, but when we go to raising that money, um, it was a three-day weekend, and we had a meeting set up where we knew um, his parents, my parents, and grandparents were going to be there. They knew what we were working on. They knew what our intentions were. And we had a presentation that was fairly high level, um, but focusing on the financial picture. This is what we need to do what we want to do. Right. And this is conservatively how quickly we can get you paid back. And uh, it was a five-year payment plan. And it was essentially our entire model had us making almost nothing, just enough to live, and working what was a very conservative business. And it was our goal to sell 100 sausages, aggressive goal to sell 100 sausages a day. And, um, And the bar... And our numbers, we looked at them actually a couple of years ago. They were way wrong. Like yeah. nothing about them was right. <laughs> we were convinced it was a very good exercise, but it's the reality distortion field. Insane. <laughs> I mean, and I obviously ten years later, eleven years later, looking back, I can look at a PL of a restaurant and yeah. tell you if they're full of it or not. But at the time we thought we were making pretty good guesses like any anyone would. Um so we 
presented this and it was actually an equity position mm-hmm. um, that we were pitching. Mm-hmm. And um, very quickly, my grandfather was like, no, no, no. The last thing I want to own any piece of is a restaurant bar. <laughs> yeah. I do not want to own anything. Just mm-hmm. take my money as a loan. I take it as a loan and um, pay it back in the five years or faster. Yeah. Um, I'm curious though, like, I mean, it sounded like you were, you just kind of came up with this idea and you just saw like a gap and, you know, you know, like, I'm just going to do this. But what if it didn't work? Like, what was going to happen? That's a lot of money to raise from, from family. Like, right. What do you, were you like worried at all? Like, it's going to be banned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything um, exiled. Yes, absolutely. I was worried. Um, like what, I, I'm curious. Like, my question is like, what did you see that you're just so like confident in knowing that like I'm going to raise this money and I'm going to pay my family back? I think there's a level of being just enough ignorant to be able to do it. Right? There's like a certain point where you know too much that you'll overthink it and not go forward. So. We could have failed. Like we would have been fools to think we wouldn't fail. But what we knew is that we could at very least get the money back to them because our overhead was excessively low. We, between Joseph and I, we just didn't need money, right? Our rent was relatively low. Our personal overhead was almost nothing. And that gave us the ability to essentially be a very lean business, mm-hmm. um, not operating with all this infrastructure. We opened with six people. That store now has 60 employees. So it was just a different model that we were going for. And um, our, our underwriting was, I think, although it be totally wrong, it was probably right given the sales Right. If we were doing that little of sales and we kept our expenses lower, obviously the expenses blew out, but our sales were blowing out too. So we were doing stuff to keep up mm-hmm. with that demand. Um, I kind of alluded to it, but I kind of feel like I was assuming, um, saying that you, you saw a gap and that's why you did it. Like, I'm curious to hear from you. Like, you know, a lot of people say follow your passions and, you know, this is like, you know, do something that you're passionate in. Was this something that you no. were passionate in? Like, why did you do it? No. Um, I like people. I like hospitality, but restaurants are brutal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're famous for saying they're a grind. <laughs> oh, yeah. Literally. Literally. Um, but it's hard, and we knew that was hard. We actually wanted to get into the bar business, and that was our real Better core. Margins, yeah. Better margins, Way a little better. easier, simpler. Things don't go bad. A little more liability, but eh, not not enough where it matters. And you have like one or two bartenders, and you're like doing fine. exactly. And that was our original concept, and it evolved into something that I think is a lot more sustainable business. Um, we we love In and Out. Mm-hmm. So do we. Yeah, I, thank you. What a company! Right, it's amazing. They haven't changed anything mm-hmm. literally anything yeah i have no they're just so fucking good <laughs> it's so good but so simple yeah they're not reinventing anything nope. they just execute with simplicity with great service every day um now we're not in and out but not yet n- not yet and and we probably won't be our price point isn't that 
but our core of what we do hasn't changed. We literally haven't changed anything. There's been a couple change out of sausages over the last 10 years, but for all intents and purposes, nothing has changed. Now, to, to look at restaurants today, um, they're changing constantly, every yeah. two weeks. You know how hard that is? Right. You know how inefficient that is? You know how much waste there is? Just well, your inventory, like, right? Your inventory, your training, your mistakes, your yeah. customer expectation. They're coming back every two weeks, and you've got to re-enthrall them, right? Well, people aren't necessarily always looking to be re-enthralled. Right? They want a consistent. People are lining up at in and out mm-hmm. every day knowing exactly what they're going to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're totally stoked to do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And similar to our restaurant. And they'll wait, you know. Insane amount of time in that. Yeah. They, I don't even know why they don't go into the store. <laughs> well, because, I, well <laughs> funny you say that uh, quick, you know, uh, story. I was talking to one of the, <laughs> the cashiers and I asked them one time, I said, which one is, you know, faster? Like, give me the, you know, the, give me the real story behind it. And she said the drive-through because, especially if it's on a street that gets busy, if we don't, we can't have it line up out on the street. So our priority is the drive-through, so that we prevent any sort of traffic on the actual street that's not in and out. So I kind of do know trip. what you're talking about though, because sometimes you'll yeah. like see the line is like onto the street, and right. then you look inside, and there's like two people at the cashier. Right. But they prioritize the yeah, drive-through. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So quick segue. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not sorry. Quick side story. That's a good side story. Yeah, yeah. It's worth talking about. <laughs> I bet we could Postmates that. Probably. Well, I wish you could Postmates in and out, but their whole thing is like the, you know, yeah. keeping it fresh and yeah. you, you can't, as far as I know, none I of them deliver you. it. I actually know, had an order driver pick up once for me. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. You're yeah, like hacking that, it though. That, but it was like 180 you gotta, you gotta give him a fat tip for that absurd. one. Like I needed, not 180, <laughs> it was probably 50 sausages for, or 50 burgers for our staff. Yeah. Anyways, um, where were we? We were. What were we talking about? I mean, I guess we can kind of segue. We were into talking like, about how, like, you know, you've had this efficiency and like kept mm. pretty much the same structure, same core. And I think that that's what we love about it. I didn't have a passion saying I need to be a restaurateur. Um, I've learned a ton. I love the business. I can't imagine that I'm going to be in a different industry. Um, well, I, I would eventually like to do something else, but. Um, I'm not going to go pursue other restaurant concepts. Are you a big foodie? So yourself, I mean, you're a pretty lean dude. So I'm yeah, I love eating out. Um, but we, I have four young kids and shocker when you start having kids, you're not eating out nearly (laughs) as much and you're eating out at like Chipotle's like awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Something like a little on the border. Yeah. Healthier. You want to set a good example. Exactly. Um, no McDonald's, Happy Meals. Totally. And I don't know, taking a group of kids to yeah, a dinner that's, is, that's I mean, if we spend 60 bucks on dinner, that's like a good thing. Right? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like. It's as cheap as my, we can go. My, yeah. It's like sometimes person, like a dinner for two is like hundred plus dollars. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, food's gotten so expensive. Um, and when you're feeding six kids or six people, it's, mm-hmm. you know. Adds up. It adds up. So we eat at home, and I'm a pretty good cook. Yeah. So you were never passionate about sausages? No, I love sausages. Oh, you did love it. I didn't think in high school that I was going to go be a <laughs> sausage preneur. Are, are these sausages <laughs> like from here, or did you travel like to Germany and like around you know Europe to experience like it, the real ones? Yeah. So half of our menu we we make, and the other half we buy from great sausage makers. Uh-huh. And uh, that has not always been the case. We opened with all other sausage makers, and then over the years we've produced some sausages that are 
uh, our core sausages are are using the best ingredients available, and we're making them, and and they're they're delicious. So, uh, so I guess my my question was like, did you um, how did I guess how did your um, love for sausages come about? Like, did you were you traveling, or did you just like from over here, like in L.A. in the U.S. experience like really good sausages, and you're like, yeah, I'm doing that. Got it. Yeah, I have had sausages my whole life. And just think about it. I mean, every time you're at a great event, and in particularly all of the American holidays that are united, right? Thinking about July 4th, those are experiences and memories that there's always sausages and hot dogs at and baseball games and all these great memories. And I think that resonates with people subconsciously when they think about sausages. And when we have a sausage restaurant, very few people have gone exclusively sausages. And even the people that have tried to copy us, they pretty quickly get scared and start folding in other. Mm -hmm. You see their originally pressed releases and they're basically fully ripping us off. And they've taken our menu layout and they've taken everything they possibly could. And then within a couple months, they add a salad and then they add a burger. And then before you know it, it's like, wait. You guys couldn't even copy somebody. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Um, yeah, because when, when I think of sausage, I think of the Costco ones. Mm. And like, from, again, like, but, but you brought up a good point about how certain products or certain things, you connect them to a memory that you have or memories that you have. And like it brings about this. I mean, anything with food really brings out a good memory for me. But, you know, there's, there's certain things that you're like, oh, yeah, I remember eating that and, you know. It was at my, you know, I don't know, cousin's tenth birthday party, and I had a great time. I don't know, jumping in the water, um, but it's like, like you said, like subconsciously, it's like, damn, like that's a that's something I want to eat. Exactly, and when you have those memories, and then you try and create, and that's what our our uh, behind the scenes, right? We're, our purpose is to help people fall in love. Mm-hmm. Like that sounds so crazy, right? That's how we teach our staff. That's mm-hmm. how we train around. What do we do? How do we serve people? If we are just serving a sausage every day, how quickly will we go out of business? How quickly will somebody copy right. us, right? right? And that's what I think what we all love about In-N-Out, right? Yeah. Their staff is on point. The place is perfectly mm-hmm. clean. Well, those feelings matter to people, and they can't write them down. Right. They can't articulate mm-hmm. them. And we, I think, talk about it all the time um, about, like, when I go out to eat, I expect good food. Like that's, my, like, that's the lowest barrier. Like, that's the lowest kind of, like, bar. What I don't expect is like very high quality service, and I won't go somewhere just because they have great food twice. But I will go somewhere if they have great service more than twice because I'm expecting the food to be good. Like if you operate a restaurant, I'm really hoping that your food is like semi decent and like edible. But your service is like what's going to bring me back, like that connection, like you know, back to the friendship, relationship, networking thing we talked about. If I can connect, I mean, there's like a few restaurants in my head right now where I can pinpoint exactly who the waiter or waitresses are. And I would go back and just want to be at their table that they're serving. Totally. I mean, that's what we love. I mean, it's the number one thing that people complain about is mm-hmm. bad service. Oh, yeah. And it's a hard thing to do, and you have to have a great culture. And to build a great culture, we could have, do a whole whole episode oh, yeah. on culture building and what that takes. And it's 99% of what we talk about and train for. So you guys don't just have sausages. You have like really exotic sausages. I'm talking the rattlesnake and rabbit, the duck and bacon. Like how did how did that part come about? So when we started looking at the world of sausage, we had 500 different sausages that we collected. 
And these existed before? And these existed before. We went to every sausage maker as long as they had a certain caliber of, of threshold. We didn't care how much they were. Um, so we would buy the most expensive things. And it took us a long time to gather 500 different sausages. We grouped them into categories of 20 and like kind. Like every sausage maker out there has a chicken apple sausage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They aren't all good. Like some of them you will spit out. So we went through that and found one from every category if we needed one. Like, for instance, uh, a lot of people like deer. Mm-hmm. Well, venison is not that great. Like, if you don't like gamey, mm-hmm. you're not going to eat it. Right. And considering that the palates in L.A. aren't necessarily gamey flavor, like game right. tolerant, mm-hmm. We would have that sausage ordered and sent back constantly. Mm-hmm. So we didn't put a venison sausage on there. But something like a rattlesnake and rabbit sausage, it was absolutely delicious mm-hmm. and it had rattlesnake in it. So, and this whole idea of rattlesnake and rabbit with the wild boar from Texas, it was just like a great story. Were you, were you worried at all that people would just be turned off by it? Like at all? Like, I mean, just looking at it, like, I mean, like, again, like in, in LA. Um, being what the ecosystem is, yeah, ecosystems like like were you just worried at all that it wouldn't hit? I mean, I absolutely was worried uh, that it wasn't hit, but still half of what we sell, uh, or vast majority, I don't know if it's half, but a lot is our bratwurst. Mm. It goes bratwurst, rattlesnake, and rabbit, and duck bacon. Those are our top three, and bratwurst is a runaway. Yeah, so people are still ordering conservatively in the sense of I'll try that. Because I've taken like so many friends there, and I always tell them like you have to get the rattlesnake around, you have to get the duck and bacon, and they're just like so hesitant. But what is their takeaway when they have it? Yeah, they they like it. Like it tastes like chicken. Okay. <laughs> or like it tastes like sorry, not chicken, but like it tastes tastes like beef. Yeah, I mean yeah. Uh, the the see, yeah, you can't pull out what part of the sausage is rattlesnake. That's right. But it's a very good sausage, and then the duck bacon sausage. To me, is absolutely outstanding. Those two are my personal favorites. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what I order, and sometimes if I'm really hungry, I'll throw in the bratwurst. I'm not yeah. gonna lie. Yeah, <laughs> and then you guys, um, it's not just like German sausages. And then you guys kind of you said you know fused <laughs> in the the Belgian side. I mean your Belgian fries are like unbelievable, and then the so beer, the, well. the beers. Yeah, getting hungry talking about it. Um, why did you decide to like fuse the two? So German. If you've been to Bavaria, you've seen that they have beer gardens set up. They mm-hmm. eat sausage at least for two meals a day, and they're drinking it with a beer. Okay. And, I mean, they even have a meal that's a sausage and a beer before 12. Like, oh. it's such a part of their culture. Sausage and eggs? It's a, it's a sa- no, just a sausage and a vice beer wow. before noon. Is like literally has a, a... It's like a snack. It's a snack. It's I like, like it. After your coffee. I'm not sure exactly, but it's pretty cool. And so that resonated really well, and they've been doing it for years. And there's a lot of credibility that comes with the German heritage mm-hmm. of sausages. They are they brought us sausages. And had you been to Bavaria, or you just heard about I it? I hadn't. Okay, so you um, kind of heard. I've been a lot since then, yeah, since then. But again, thankful for uh, Google that shit. <laughs> yeah. And you can learn a lot. Yeah. So that's that's. Is the how. sausage like significantly better there there than it is here? No, everybody here uses German equipment. We, at this point, I use a European hog, mm-hmm. um, so we have as m- close of similarity. At, at, it's the experience and the years of experience that they have. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like New York bagels. Like, why can right. they make bagels better? Maybe it's in your head, right? 
Um, there's certain styles that I'm sure they do better than mm -hmm. butchers here, but mm -hmm. people aren't necessarily interested right. in those styles right. either. So Tyler, I have a question for you and it's more so as me as a consumer and like as a fan mm -hmm. of, you know, your restaurant. So there's been time and this is like in full, just I'm being honest. So at times I'm, I'm like in the downtown area and we're like, what do we eat? And we're like, okay, there's really like, there's nothing fast and good, you know, and I want fast, good and like flavorful and semi-healthy, but sometimes, you know, it's okay if it's not healthy, but the lines are so long. You know, I'm just like, wow, what am I going to do? Should I wait? Should I not wait? Has that been a challenge for you guys to, you know, get to all those customers, show them great customer service, still put out a great product and make sure they come back? Yeah. So we've gotten better at it. But to address what my belief is, nobody is a customer until they've paid. So right. our contract doesn't start until the transaction happens. Correct. So it's our job to make sure that we execute everything from that point forward perfectly. And if we can keep you in line or make that line part of the experience, the higher likelihood you're going to enjoy your experience. But you don't, when you leave a restaurant, you are not remembering what the line was like. Mm -hmm. Or you won't remember the line if the experience exactly. was great. Mm -hmm. um, so there has to be, you have to earn that. And then we do a few things in line. Um, I'm pretty sure I've been there where I've gotten beer in line. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was so great. As soon as you get in the door, we want to get you a beer yeah. because there's another 10 minutes or so once you're inside the door. Right. Uh, it has. We're pretty good at moving the line fast, mm -hmm. faster than we used to. Mm -hmm. But for the first five or seven years, the line moved pretty slow because there wasn't a whole lot else to do in downtown. Right. And people would come to us and then stay in the restaurant. Right. So we would pause the line or move it super slow mm -hmm. to allow for space to open up in the right. dining room. Today, whether it's a good or a bad thing, I'm not sure. People are spending less time in the restaurant mm -hmm. than they used to. Mm -hmm. That's because there is seven bars within a half mile of yeah, us, or right. seven breweries. Yeah, the Arts District breweries. Arts there, District, Angel, Angel City. City, Boomtown, yeah. and a handful of others. So that's cool for the neighborhood and for the long-term success of the business. I think that's all great. Yeah. Um, it's a destination area, but people have other options too. They're not going to get in a line that's long. Mm -hmm. If they see it, they're gone. Yeah, and right. people text us and call us like, hey, your line's too long. And we've kind of tried and keep it at the length that people are comfortable getting in. But as more competition comes, we have to be able to move that line fast. Mm -hmm. um, but our restraint is going to be whether or not we can cook it perfectly yeah. and whether or not right. we have seating. So kind of going back to how this thing just started, like you were still in college, is that right? I left college before we opened. So you left college. Um, tell us about like the early days of getting it going. Like, were, were, was it tough? Like, were there any challenges? Like, real challenges you faced? All these um, sissies out there that complain about how hard restaurants are. Yeah. Uh, nope, I'm another one. So <laughs> it, it was extremely hard. I remember days where I'd get in my car after being at work for 12, 14 hours and be exhausted. I mean, just as exhausted as you possibly could be. And after six months of not taking a day off, you're kind of like, am I really like, I knew this was going to be hard, but did I, did I think it was going to be this hard? Uh, is this worth it? And I went from 195 pounds down to 
I don't know, I think it was 165 at one time. I kind of, my skin kind of changed colors. You're just not eating right. You're working a ton. You're kind of on autopilot. You're always, every time a customer's there, they don't know what you went through the whole yeah, last good. six months. And what was most of your time spent on at that time? Service. Yeah. I was on the floor. Were you just walking around saying greeting just, people? Just on the floor and yeah. then making sure that every single order was perfectly executed. And mm-hmm. any problem, I was the one fixing. Right. Mm-hmm. You were so the firefighter. I, I was a firefighter for four years. Yeah. Um, and, and was the hardest part getting people in the door, or is it more like, uh, you know, kind of the whole back, back so end of things? So what was cool about when we opened, 2008, uh, like basically right yeah. now, 10 years ago. Love and, it. And, and, a, and a tough time. And so the recession was getting heating up, and uh, we were the beginning of four essentially recession years, Mm -hmm. at least four recession years, and the restaurants were closing. But at the same time, the iPhone came out, native apps were, uh, whatever it's called when apps essentially, the iPhone opened up apps for Mm -hmm. developers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yelp was one of the very first apps that were available, Mm -hmm. and that not only was blogging, all of this, a podcast, mm-hmm. all of this kind of social, easy generating media, no longer was the newspaper your gatekeeper. The LA Times did an article on us the second day, and that started a snowball effect of every single print and digital publication, professional or hobbyist, writing about us. Mm-hmm. We had Rattlesnake, we had a, I was 22 or 23 just finished or dropped out of USC and we're in this random neighborhood east of downtown LA that nobody has ever been to. And there's just a lot of conversation around that. We had our best friends from Apollos next door to us. And that was the reason that we ultimately found that neighborhood. And, um, it was just the coolest area and so much to talk about. And that, that ultimately started a snowball effect and getting people in the door, thankfully was not our problem servicing them was our problem. I, we were growing at like 100% a month mm. or more. And, and it was just people telling other people? Yep. We never did any marketing, uh, any formal marketing. Mm. I mean, tons of interviews and... Word of mouth. Uh, word of mouth. Um, but uh, when you have two-week lead time on your product and you're 50% bigger than when you placed your order, you, you're ordering and you're like, oh, we'll never go through all that. And then you run out a weekend when you needed it to last two weeks yeah. and your suppliers. And that's where you start seeing who's willing to work with you, mm-hmm. right? Who's willing to break their rules. When we would go through all of our bread during lunch and you're begging your baker to turn the bakery back on to make you bread for dinner. Or when you're going into the weekend, it's Friday and you're down, you normally have 18 sausages and you're down to three, like three flavors. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously the least popular of the three the flavors. <laughs> Like, that's a really hard thing. Wait, you're a restaurant and you only serve sausages and you have three kinds? Like, it's really hard I mean, to get yeah. people back. Yeah. yeah. And you have to just relate. And thankfully, people had a lot of grace at that time, a lot more grace than I think the food scene has today. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, they wanted to see you succeed. We had ran out of money. We're still finishing construction and literally we're doing construction next to people eating. So they were a part of this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then there's just the social aspect of it. There wasn't a whole lot to share at the time. 
Um, it's a different world. And, and, and speaking of the time, like, like you said, restaurants were closing. It was, it was a really tough time for the economy. If you like looking back, like, is there one thing that you, or like one or two things that you can pinpoint, like, was the reason that you made it out of that and have become, have had a successful business since then? Um, it'd be hard to pinpoint one thing, but I do think that, uh, recessions allow for, for businesses that are on the cusp to go out a business. They just weren't providing a good enough service to make Mm it. And we were coming in at that time and people are looking for new stuff. People weren't not spending money at the time. They were looking for a lower price point experience. And that's what we were providing is a fun evening for 20 to 30 bucks. It wasn't like everybody was out of money. Right. It was was competitive, but it was different. Right. They were more conservative. They were more careful. Exactly. They were really going to choose, but people were still going to games. Right. People you know, I mean, that was like prime time Lakers years. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we actually do better on years. The Lakers do worse, which is not in LA. Do you have TVs in there? No. That's probably why. That's why. <laughs> Whereas Dodgers, the better the Dodgers do, the better we do for business. Well, now I guess you're in a spot where the Dodgers are doing great. Lakers are hopefully doing great again. So it's going to be a fun year. Yeah, It'll be a fun year. Yeah. I Rams went to, are doing great. Rams are insane. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to be fun. So, um, how long until you launched your second uh, location in Venice, and why? Why like why did you launch it at that at that moment? So we opened in Venice on Lincoln in 2012, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was about, about three, three, four years, four yeah. years, and we uh, we thought there was a lot of cross pollinating between Venice and downtown. A lot of similar people. We saw Venice could have some growth and it has had a ton of growth. Um, not all of it's necessarily awesome for the restaurant environment, but at the same time, Venice was a great place to go to business and, and we're not in a neighbor. We're in the neighborhood side of Venice. We're not in the touristy mm-hmm, side of mm-hmm, Venice. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that plays into our favor along that and also the fact that so many like startups and companies have come into that area. Like I used to work like right down the street. So, um, like it's become like, you know, obviously the happy hour spot and all these things, which I'm sure has helped a lot. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, our customer base has changed dramatically over the years. It hasn't necessarily increased the size of the business at all. Uh, and the way people are getting food is changing. We could have a discussion i mean the delivery of food right. is changing our our uh the landscape delivery and like people not getting out of their house right i call i mean i think i call it or have read about it the netflix effect right, right. people are are watching netflix and addicted to their show right. and they only have out x amount of time and it's you know five or seven bucks more to get food delivered. not to mention traffic like getting worse and like no one wanting to get in their car totally i attribute more of it to just laziness and laziness yeah, yeah. that's what it is totally so, uh, laziness because there is an alternative. They have an alternative, right? Uh, or they the opportunity cost at this point. Yeah. So uh, that's changing, and um, and companies are bringing in lunch. That's another huge competitor uh, of restaurants today. Uh, that I'm watching very closely is is how do you continue to get food to the people that want it, um, and and then Whole Foods and Gelson's and these other markets are doing mm-hmm. such an amazing job right. with their grab-and-go hot food. 
uh, you know, it's like gourmet food. Like, yeah, it's golden corral, but <laughs> not the golden corral, like right. yeah. really amazing food at a pretty reasonable price point. Right. I mean, you can go to whole foods and for less than 20 bucks, have an amazingly healthy, good dinner and a restaurant's going to never be able to compete with yeah. that. For sure. So what was the biggest challenge of, you know, location number two? So location number two, we spent a lot of time getting set up. We had built a management team. We had built systems. And we opened the restaurant and thought we had it all dialed in, and everything fell apart again. Mm -hmm. I was back in the restaurant full time. I needed another year or so without taking a day off and and spending my time on La Brea and the 10, um, commuting from Hollywood. And uh, the downtown store was running well, very well, but... Just establishing systems and establishing culture, you cannot outsource that. And yeah. that was a learning lesson that I ultimately learned again in Denver and couldn't figure out a way around. Mm-hmm. So you launched, uh, is it a beer garden in Denver? Is it different or is it the same it, thing? Essentially the same, no, identical business yeah. with a bigger footprint. Got it. We had an outdoor seating area that could hold 150 people. Oh, wow. So is that how you see kind of the future, like expanding out of L.A. Um, into different kind of hubs that you see that this was our concept vision. working? Yes, that was our vision. Um, we have some interesting ideas at the time, which, not interesting, less popular ideas today than more of a traditional business is we don't like debt. Mm-hmm. We're a debt-free business. And that allows me to sleep really well at night. Joseph and I own 100% of the business. And so when did you pay your investors back? Uh, we paid them back, geez, within the first three or four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then opened Under promised over delivered. Opened Venice. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, my dad wasn't so happy with us going out and building another restaurant before he was paid back. So we, <laughs> we had to fast forward that to get him and everybody paid back. Yeah. So you said that that was your vision to expand out. Like, has Denver, I mean, like, has that vision come true or is it? Changing? We had set. We wanted to go open Denver, Chicago, New York, Miami. You know, Austin. I feel like this Nashville. would crush in New York. I think it would. I agree. I live here. <laughs> that's that's a big thing. Yeah, you don't want to be back and forth. All you can't outsource. You can't outsource yourself. You yeah. can't outsource yourself. There's a there's a value in joint venture or a value in private equity. Mm-hmm. Um, that come into play when you make moves like that, where you bring in very expensive, very wise, experienced people that may or may not be the right people. You just kind of hope that you pick the right one or do as much due diligence. And there's a level of really enjoying what I do every day. I love going to work. I, for the most part, get to choose what I want to do that day in the sense of what do I want to work on? What's important now? Um, What does the staff need I teach all of our leadership classes and our staff development classes. Uh, I'm able to spend time with customers, not as much as I used to, but uh, I have those relationships still. So it's fun. Right. Uh, I have I, I, our staff is well taken care of, and if if we want to do something different, we do it. Yeah. Uh, so not having somebody to report to has been very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, at the at the same time, the downside is we don't have a bunch of private equity money that we can go build six restaurants and right. if one doesn't work out, oh, whatever, it's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. 
I have to go move if yeah. a restaurant doesn't work out. Right. You, you strike me, obviously, as a, as a big picture thinker. I mean, even going back to like in college, um, in your accounting classes, you didn't want to do the kind of, you, you weren't as interested in the nitty gritty stuff, but you kind of got the bigger idea. But when it comes to business and this whole kind of scaling problem and issue, how do you deal with that? You know, with the, in this situation, like scaling to different cities, but you don't want to, you know, have to travel around a lot. Like, how do you... How do you have this big vision and execute on that vision? Well, our vision's changed. So we opened in Denver. We had a contractor uh, nightmare who was convicted on 70 accounts and three felonies. Oh, God. 70 misdemeanors and three felonies. Nice. So that was a nightmare. And then we had a restaurant open about a year and a half late that was three times over budget because he had stole so much and we had to repay all of the people that did work. And then because he hired such shady people, we had to hire new people to do it correctly. So we kind of did it three times. So it was just a a learning lesson to the max. And then the restaurant didn't perform at all. Uh, It was pretty interesting. Weed became legal while we were there. And that took a giant chunk of the labor market into farming. And it brought in a ton of people to the city that were really struggling with drug addiction, um, hard, more hardcore drugs that wanted to be in the marijuana or cannabis industry but couldn't even get jobs in the cannabis industry. And so it just the workforce was in flux. It hadn't caught up. The city was growing extremely fast, and, and all these factors, yeah. uh, not to mention we, we didn't pick a great location, I don't think. But I think we could have overcome that if we were able you know, anyways, you never know exactly why people, people loved it, just not enough to justify Mm -hmm. staying in business. Mm -hmm. Um, so we aren't, we aren't looking heavily right now in other cities. Uh, a friend told me, you know, like a good chunk of all of the people in in the country live in California Yep. and a good chunk of the people that have excess money to spend on $7 sausages live in California. So you don't need to go run too far. And there's a reason why In-N-Out really was in California for a long time before. I mean, they're not really everywhere now either, but that's why they're 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 in the areas that are the most popular and populous. Exactly, the it density must be one of the biggest companies that are so concentrated, right? Like as far as like in the restaurant I, space, they, I they mean, have to be like In-N-Out. It has some for a privately held company, but yes, yeah. but Subway, right? Yeah. Or McDonald's. Isn't Subway Subway's not international? Oh, they're international. Yeah. No, I'm in like a concentrated area. Like oh, yeah, I don't area. know. Yeah. To, like to not have to like expand out and to different markets and just kind right. of, you know, keep that one market so happy that they just keep coming back. It's family owned business too. That's what it is. It's pretty impressive. So I know Tyler, you mentioned early on and actually before I get there, during this time, were you like getting married and having kids? So I proposed to my wife the same day that we asked for funding. From your parents. parents. Oh, so that was like the hottest day of your life. It was a busy morning. Oh, it was in the morning. <laughs> I got engaged in the morning and then made and like this no presentation. Money, like you're just like, maybe I won't like make a living. Well, I knew I wasn't going to finish school. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was like, well, we've got to go execute this because <laughs> it's time to get married. And uh, we had our, f- we were, got married during construction. And then we had our first our oldest turns nine in December, so we, we got pregnant a couple months after the restaurant opened. Wow. 
busy, busy times. And we now have four kids. So you mentioned, you know, that you had told your wife early on that, you know, this is the life you're living, the entrepreneurship life. That, yeah. You know, you know what you're signing up yeah, for. Are so, you sure you're okay with I mean, this? So what was that conversation like? Yeah. Well, it's an ongoing conversation in the sense that um, we have a business right now that's providing for us mm -hmm. and uh, that's awesome. Right. But you'd be a, a fool to think that it'll always be that way, particularly in an entrepreneurial lifestyle. And I mean, uh, entrepreneurs get a lot of slack sometimes for uh, when things go well, but nobody's giving them a handout when you see all of these entrepreneurs right. that, that kind of things changed, right? Environment changed, the economy changed, the environment, the business became irrelevant, whatever right. it might be. Um, so it's just understanding that and being comfortable with that. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that right now you're back in school uh, getting your master's degree in entrepreneurship. And what was the other? Uh, it's the science of entrepreneurship and innovation. So how, how do you see that um, kind of like how do you see your future based on that? Like why did you do that? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I never finished my degree at SC. I spent right. four years there. And I speak about, I don't know, maybe four to five times a semester. So I'm always on campus for the last 10 years, 10 times a year. So have a lot of relationships with some of some people I look up to and respect a lot. And this particular program, I was seeing the caliber of students as just increasing. I'm the fifth cohort. And I'd go and the questions were better, the, the, the people were just on point essentially mm. if that's a fair way to say it on just, fleek yeah i was yeah. like these are really high caliber individuals i'd love to be learn with them mm. and uh tommy knapp uh, was the director of the program and tommy's the man yeah he's a great guy and i mentioned that i i kind of wanted to get a degree like is there anything that you think like what strategy like how could how could i do that and he's like, well, let me see what I can do. Let me, and and we he helped get uh, an exemption from the dean, and hopefully I can talk. You're, about you're this. like the king of exemptions at USC, right? Well, I didn't get them all. <laughs> they didn't let me into the business school. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, I just made my own path there. So yeah, uh, and we're able to to make a case that I was able to get a degree, an undergraduate degree, in an untraditional, unconventional way. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so that gave me permission to get into the program and it's a one-year program. I'll do it over two years. And I, I think it will be cool to have a degree from SC. Um, obviously yeah. an SC degree is worth something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, at least they sure tell you it's worth something. <laughs> well, it's worth it's, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> it's only worth something if you want to go work for someone else. Exactly. It's worth a lot like more, but, um, at the end of the day, you know, something, something you just connect with on a personal level with other people. I mean, that's really, again, going back to what it is, is just connecting with other people. It's a lot. And I've met some really spectacular people. I'm, you never know exactly what you learn in class every day, but the professors are phenomenal. They have great experience and they're able to see a zillion businesses and they force you to think about things a little differently. Mm -hmm. And when you're working with high caliber people on a daily basis on either random or cool things, it helps force you to have conversations and think, which is good. Mm -hmm. How the hell do you have time to be a husband, father, business owner, and a student? 
I have no idea. Um, right now is hard. Yeah. Like we, I mean, I felt terrible for how much time we had to spend scheduling because I try to keep things open. But at the moment, like I'm impossible. I'm booked six thirty till nine or eleven at night every day. And you're going to work too, obviously. I am going to work. I mean, I am probably not working as much as I should be. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I'm working. I mean, I'm not. I'm, right. I have to work. Right. So, do you see? Your, do you see like Tyler Wilson doing something? else other than Verskuche? At the moment, no. Like, I have no time. Yeah, I like to think. Th- this is what's hard is, like, that entrepreneurial, like, yeah. y- you have to continually stay focused on what you're doing. And I've been doing sausages and beer for 10 years. I absolutely love sausages and beers, but it's it can get a little monotonous, right? But our customers still love it. Mm-hmm. And gratefully, they love it. Uh, we love it. You want a new challenge sometimes, but you really create more problems for yourself when you start changing your business. Uh, And yet, I don't have time to do another business, but I have ideas. I have things I'd like to do. Uh, I would approach it differently. Um, But you've already like established that credibility. Like, if you needed to, you know, have a team or like get raise money, like I'm, I'm sure it's not as big of a challenge as if it was if you were a first time entrepreneur. So yeah, I hope not. Um, although I was just in San Francisco this week hearing presentations from venture capital firms and, uh, just hearing about how they do their business, man, that, that seems like it's a world I don't understand trying to raise money and your paycheck comes from something you never actually made money. And, and that idea just blows. So you think it's a bubble? I don't know. I mean, it's obviously not right. Seems like it. It feels fake, but then, They're just counting on one or two companies just hitting, like when the billions of dollars are going public or something, and everything else, all their other investments are subsidized. Exactly. And then I also, you know, I was reading some quotes from, uh, I don't remember what I was reading today, but some of the richest people in the world are investors. They're not entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's the that's you know, the leverage. So think about how you're an entrepreneur. Well, every entrepreneur wants to be an investor, and every investor wants to feel the fire of being an entrepreneur. It's like it's just a never-ending cycle. It is, but it's, it's good to be both, I guess, if you can. Right, Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban, I, I would say. I mean, he's a great investor, it, or at least I feel that way. Him, Benioff, probably. I mean, I don't know his least recent time acquisition. I'm not sure it was the best investment, but seems he a got a good deal on that, in my yeah. opinion. Another another Trojan, by the way. Really, Mark, Mark yeah. Benioff, founder of Salesforce. Yeah. So that building is beautiful. Oh, yeah. yeah. How about that crack? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess for the I, I hate this question when it's asked of me. Mm-hmm. You know, what does the next three, four, five, six years look like? But you know, if you were to Let's 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 make a fun hypothetical. Let's mm-hmm. assume it's 2020 right now. Your kids are, you know, t- oh, 2020 is two years away. Shit. Only 20, two years. 2030. <laughs> okay, so let's I'm, go. I, 2030. I thought I was living in 2008. Um, 2030. You know, your kid, your oldest kid is going to be 21 years old. Other kids are older. Mm-hmm. Where do you see yourself as just like a human being? Forget entrepreneur. You know, student, whatever. Like as a human being, where do you want to be? Yeah. So I would like to see if I could be a professor. I think it would be really fun to teach a class, which I think is one of my ideas of getting a degree. I think I have to have a degree to mm-hmm. be a professor of any kind. 
Um, now, whether that be at USC or, or somewhere else, I don't know. Um, I would like to be available to enjoy, you know, I'm not going to push it as hard as I internally want to the next 10 years because of my kids and I love being with them and going to school and putting them to bed and all the fun things of being a dad, um, that are brutally hard and not necessarily rewarded always, but they're fun. And, uh, I also, uh, I really enjoy investing. I, I genuinely enjoy learning about other people's businesses and, as much as I can add value or teach the things that I have learned being in the trenches for, it is only 10 years, but that would be at 20 years at that point. And Mm -hmm. uh, I've started to get involved in a handful of other businesses. And there's a level of enjoyment when you more enjoyment, when you don't have to grind the day in and day out of operations and can be more strategic and, that's a very small part of every business mm-hmm. and it's everybody's goal to be strategic. But, uh, I, I feel like I have some value to add there and I would love to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, advisory boards, board seats, if I am able to create that kind of right. value. Right. Love it. Well, this has been so great, Tyler. Thanks for having us in your home and sharing your story. And, you know, I've always wanted to like hear about how, you know, you started reverse crochet and, uh, you know, can't wait to see where things go from there just for the business, but also for yourself. So, um, you know, thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thanks for having us.